Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. He got his start as a journalist with a front row seat to Steve Jobs' inner circle and wrote the seminal book, The Little Kingdom, on the eventful early years at Apple. Then, Michael Moritz decided to try his luck in venture capital. He went on to become one of the most heralded investors in Silicon Valley history, joining the boards of Google and Yahoo. Then, a few years ago, took a step back for a rare health condition he's never revealed. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, Sir Michael Moritz, chairman of Sequoia Capital and co-author of the new book, Leading. Sir Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. You know, you wrote this book with another sir, Sir Alex Ferguson, the legendary former manager of Manchester United. He's one of the most revered names in football, or as we call it, soccer. What drew you to this project as a journalist turned tech investor? I'd always followed United, uh, not as a raving fan, but as a, a, a young boy, I'd started to follow them and I'd followed them through the years. But then working in Silicon Valley, uh, working hard to help build Sequoia, I was very curious about organizations that had succeeded for a very long time and performed at a extremely high level, and particularly those organizations that have been run by one individual. And there just are not that many of them. You both in your careers have been tasked with taking undervalued assets and making them profitable. He grew up in Scotland and I grew up in Wales. Both of us sort of have an outsider's mentality. And also, I think, uh, a fair amount of uh, a big work ethic. He is credited with transforming this faltering club into a $3 billion public company. What, what was key to his success? What are the lessons for men and women in business here? I wish I'd done this or thought about all these topics 30 years ago, because I know that I certainly would have been uh, far more effective. One is patience, two is a long-term view, three is developing people inside of the organization, particularly young people, and um, bringing them along. Because if you're successful doing that, you build great consistency and loyalty. And you, it's easier to instill the sort of levels of performance um, the, the, that you want. You boil down the traits of a distinctive leader to just two. One is obsession, and two, capacity for dealing with people. You might look at um, Jeff Bezos or uh, Larry Page or uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, these people are obsessed with, at the beginning, the products that they want to build, and then um, their companies. And I think the very successful uh, people are great at building teams around them. Microsoft, for example, in its heyday, had a very stable uh, management team, the same 
has been true at Apple, obviously. You are so well known for your, your time chronicling the early days of Apple, and you spent time with Jobs. You were in favor with him. You were out of favor with him. Um, I wonder what you learned by watching Steve so closely about what makes a good leader and what makes a bad leader. For Steve, the product was never good enough, whether it was a computer or a phone or a tablet, so he was always thinking about the next thing. And I think that's the distinctive hallmark of uh, a truly great leader, is that great is never great enough. There were a lot of qualities about Steve that, you know, are so controversial. Is the Jobs model a good one? I'm a huge admirer, was a huge admirer, am a huge admirer of Steve. And it's very easy for people to sit and snipe. I'm no psychiatrist or shrink, but I don't think any of us really understand the emotional consequences of being put up for adoption mm -hmm. and how that affects your life afterwards. And what people also don't see about Steve, and I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash the fellow, is that this was an individual very capable when he wished of showing great empathy and compassion. Steve is the most remarkable person that I've met. Just out of curiosity, where did you leave it with him? Uh, sadly, um, unfinished. Um, polite on, on business terms, but, uh, but that was uh, about it. You wrote the famous Time cover story about the machine of the year, and you were a journalist at the dawn of the, the PC revolution. I want to talk to you about some up-and-coming leaders in, in technology, you know, the sort of archetypes of the Brian Cheskies. You guys mm -hmm. are an investor in Airbnb, mm -hmm. and, and Travis Kalanick at Uber. Brian exemplifies the wonderful traits of a leader. He's obsessed with um, his company. Um, for him, um, there's always another hill and uh, mountain to climb. He pushes his um, team very hard to um, do the impossible. He has a very long-term uh, view of his business. Um, and he's got a lot of energy. He's got a lot of optimism about the prospect. He's a fantastic leader. What about Travis Kalanick? Travis is somebody that I don't pretend to know well. He's so. so controversial. Well, controversial. Have you met anyone who isn't controversial, who's done really interesting things? Having known three decades of leaders in Silicon Valley, do you think that you have to be arrogant to be successful? Four decades. Four decades, <laughs> excuse me. Lots of leaders make um, decisions about taking their organization in a direction that perhaps isn't wildly popular within um, the organization. And um, sometimes it spills over uh, into arrogance. I'm different from how I was in my 20s. Bill Gates, who's in his 50s, is very different from what he was in his 20s. He's in, everybody learns a lot in the pursuit. So the understandable energy and enthusiasm that sometimes spills over to arrogance in some people in their 20s tends to get softened over time. You wrote this book before Jack Dorsey was named CEO of Twitter. And you say that the only Silicon Valley company that grew from strength to strength, as you say, as it swapped CEOs, was Intel in the first 30 years. So do you think Twitter can become the second in history? I think it's far better to um, bring a founder back who still feels a real sense of dedication and ownership with the company than 
going outside and recruiting a hired hand. Jack hasn't been bashful about saying that the product at Twitter uh, needs improvement. And um, that's where his strengths lie, obviously. And if the product improves, presumably consumer satisfaction and the business will improve as well. As you said, you grew up in Wales and you somehow made it to Silicon Valley. What kind of kid were you and how did you get here? I got here through no grand plans. I went to college in Britain, and this was uh, the Britain of the mid-1970s. But it wasn't a particularly enticing place if you were a young graduate looking for opportunity. So I came here and was very lucky to get a scholarship to come and study here. And then after that, was lucky again to get a job at Time magazine, who eventually sent me out to Silicon Valley. I'm a history major, knew nothing about technologies, and eventually, through um, a stroke of great luck, a fellow who had started Sequoia, Don Valentine, um, took a risk on me. What are the qualities that you think you had as a journalist that made you a good investor? Well, I'm not sure that I am a good investor because <laughs> we, we always keep making mistakes. And I think the investment business, the venture business, some of the other businesses that we're in at Sequoia, it's a very humbling pursuit. As soon as you think you're good at it, you get uh, chopped off um, at the knees. Journalism, though, um, was pretty helpful because you are often parachuted into stories that you know absolutely nothing about. Mm. You have to get your bearings extremely quickly. You've got to deal with imperfect information, and then you have to have a point of view if you're a journalist or you make an investment decision if you're an investor. You're trying to read people, you're trying to um, gauge sentiment. I found the fact that I had been trained to make up my mind about a confusing set of information extremely helpful. Andreessen Horowitz has really perpetuated this idea that good VCs need to be former founders or former CEOs, of which you are neither. I think it's very difficult to tell from somebody's background whether or not they'll be um, successful in the venture business. We have um, a, company, a lot of company founders um, at Sequoia, but there's also room for lots of other people to uh, succeed as well. Being in the investment business is also different from running a company. People like us, we are not running the company. We're trying to help these companies as, as much as possible. And the other thing that people miss is that we're working very hard on building our own organization. Because unless you have that at the heart of everything, you cannot make consistent investments. You say in the book that the minute you think you're winning, that's dangerous. And Sequoia may be the most successful venture capital firm in history. What do you do from within to evolve the firm and stay on the edge? It begins with consistency and showing up for work every day. And I know that sounds A lot of sim people show up for work every day. They're not uh, Sequoia. It's true, but it sounds simple, and it's easy to take. It's easy to start easing, easing back, and not working quite as hard, um, and not seeking the same level of success, not having the same hunger, getting arrogant, becoming complacent, believing that you're as good as your press clippings, which are never true. We still act like this, in the belief that we're only as good 
as two things. One, the next person that we hire to become part of Sequoia. And the second is our next investment. If the headline of Sequoia's slide deck was RIP good times during the financial crisis, what would the headline be today? Gravity hasn't been repealed. What do you mean by that? That things eventually will fall down to earth if they're not properly constructed. So how do you see this playing out? Does this bubble burst or is there a soft landing? It's a more rational time than 1999 because I don't think there's a sort of universal feeling that every company is going to be a massive success and people are a bit more discriminating. And some of them are going to come a cropper. Come a cropper. Is that a British phrase? Come a cropper. Is what a does cropper. that mean? Um, um, they will, uh, they'll fail. They'll fail. It's the law of corporate and business evolution. If uh, people get too big for their britches, if the companies are run poorly, if money is wasted, if the product or service doesn't really fulfill its promise, the companies deserve to fail. How protected are late stage investments in this environment? Many late stage investments aren't really investments. They're just disguised forms of debt. And they're very well protected. Many of them are very well protected because of the terms that investors have um, put around them. The ratchets? The ratchets, the liquidation preferences. These aren't really equity investments, they're debt. It, but is that a dangerous trend? These ratchets and the guarantee that investors will get a certain amount back? If the company doesn't perform, yes. It's high-risk poker. What about the risk of, of down rounds and delayed IPOs? How high is that risk right now? It'll depend on the performance of of each company, but we've gone through this period where the valuations in the private market are far in excess of uh, what they are in the, in the public market. So you have uh, one bucket of bubbling water and uh, another bucket of fairly cool water, and as those two buckets are commingled, the, the temperature will even out. What kinds of businesses do you see will be the first to go belly up, and what trends do you see that will last? The businesses that will go belly up are the ones that are run by people who deny reality and don't use the money that they've raised very wisely and think that there are a whole bunch of shortcuts to success. Those things will come a cropper. The companies that are run prudently, that have got um, really good discipline about them, that have the right ethical compass from the top, where, um, and also that have very distinctive products. Those are going to flourish. Let's talk about the on-demand economy. You're, right. You were an early investor in Webvan. You're right. an investor in Instacart. There are questions about that model. The one thing that we got right about Webvan, although we made a lot of horrible mistakes, uh, was the consumer demand for this service um, is just through the roof and which is what uh, young Instacart is finding today. Instacart, for example, it doesn't have uh, huge factories it doesn't, or, or distribution centers. It doesn't have its own vans. It doesn't have all the capital infrastructure that was required um, to build web van. And it can manage a workforce through these uh, incredibly powerful smartphones. And it's incumbent on Instacart and its wonderful founder and CEO, Apoorva Mehta, to make sure that 
all of the uh, economics and unit economics makes sense, which it will. And, but the company is providing a fantastic service um, to consumers who just swear by it. Any concern about competition from Uber? You always are um, aware of competitors, and particularly companies as successful as Uber or Amazon. But you can't define yourself by them or uh, run afraid, because then you're following. Instacart business is a very, very complicated business that is... Uh, uh, very difficult for any company to mimic. I know you were really bullish on Alibaba's IPO last year. How bullish are you now about Alibaba and Chinese internet companies? Despite the bedlam that we all read about, I'll say something that'll strike you as odd. I don't think anything has changed mm -hmm. about China. The underlying consumer demand is very strong in China. The internet companies there, their business is is very good. It's strong, it's healthy, um, it's vibrant. And, um, you know, we've built our own business there over the course of the last uh, 13, 14 years. And Quite it's a, a real, robust business. A I very robust it. business uh, run by some wonderful people. And um, it's no accident that seven of the 20 most valuable internet companies today are Chinese, because over the next 20 years, there's going to be far more business done between the technology companies that get started in China and get started in the U.S. than there has been over the last uh, 20 years. What does Silicon Valley have to learn from China? I'm always struck by how eager um, people running Chinese companies are to learn about their American counterparts, how frequently they come to the United States, how jammed their schedules are when they come mm -hmm. here. I wish that the CEOs and founders of Silicon Valley companies did the same thing in China, because I think we can learn a lot from them. And in mobile in particular, the products are different, the services are different. If any Silicon Valley company aspires to be a global company, China is going to be a very big part of their future. Now we're seeing Airbnb uh, start its own China-based company with a mm -hmm. Chinese CEO. Mm -hmm. a LinkedIn as well. A LinkedIn as well. What does it take for U.S. tech companies to succeed in China? We tried not to make the mistakes that we watched others make. And so the first thing that you need to do is go there and admit you know nothing you need to understand is that the market is different and you definitely don't staff your company in China with people from America or Europe. Mm -hmm. You also need to understand that there's a very different work ethic in China. Uh, people just happen uh, to work a lot harder so it's a whole new uh, level of, of competition. Sequoia is very successful but you have no women partners. What do you think your responsibility is there? We think about it a lot. Um, I like to think and genuinely believe that we are um, blind to somebody's sex, to their religion, um, to their background. We probably have more um, different nationalities uh, working at Sequoia than pretty much. Uh, it's a very cosmopolitan um, setting. Um, the fact that we've um, embraced China, we've embraced India, we've operated in Israel for a long time, I think, 
shows that. The real question I think that uh, you might have is why, for example, aren't there more women? Uh, we have many more women working in our China business than we do in our U.S. business. Why is that the case? I think the issue begins in the high schools and where women, particularly in America and also in Europe, tend to elect not to study the sciences when they're 11 and 12. So suddenly the hiring pool is much smaller. So you think it's a pipeline problem? Because it, some, it's, say it's people, a, some would say, well, you're not looking hard enough. Oh, we look very hard. In fact, we just hired um, a young um, woman from Stanford who's every bit as good as her, her peers, and if there are more like her, we'll hire them. What we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. But if there are fabulously bright, driven women who are really interested in technology, very hungry to succeed and can meet our performance standards, we'd hire them all day and night. 2012, you took a step back yes. from day-to-day -day operations. How are you doing? We're seeing you taking on new boards. Yeah, um, it's great. What's it, what's it been like for the last two, three years? I've enjoyed it. Um, it's, um, I did so for a variety of reasons. I, uh, you know, that we, I talked about uh, at the time, which we don't need to revisit. Um, and I, tr I act as, I hope, a helpful team member. I'm not involved in the management of the business at all. I'm involved with a, uh, several companies, um, some of them very young. And whenever somebody wants some help at Sequoia, I'm more than um, happy to do it. Go to India, go to China. Uh, we have a couple of investments in Europe I'm engaged with, but um, I also have a bit of time to do things like write a book with a wonderful man who managed a fantastic soccer game. Yeah. You could be sitting on a beach right now. I can't imagine anything more boring than sitting on a beach. I think uh, the vibrancy of life comes around um, uh, new experiences and being around young people. So what's next for Sir Michael Moritz? I have no idea. <laughs> Some, something will show up. Sir Michael, thank you so much for joining us today no, on the show. It's been really great to have yeah, you here. Good. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.